0: These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Episode 83 of the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network. On today's show, I talk with Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas, an author, academic researcher, and veteran mental health expert and U.S. Marine Corps veteran.
1: It took me several years. It definitely took longer than I wish that it had, but I think the more that we talk about destigmatizing mental health treatment, the more that we talk about alternative paths to getting health healing and mental health treatment, the the more organizations that are out there trying to promote this to veterans, the more um student organizations that are helping use campuses as sites of intervention because we have so many, uh, so many service members that leave the military and immediately go to the, the college setting using their post 9-11 GI Bill. The more work, the more people working in this space, the, the quicker veterans are going to, to make their way to treatment if they do in fact need it.
0: Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 Cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge, useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, today we have uh, an expert, an author, uh, a professor, a veteran uh, coming on to talk about her particular perspective uh, regarding veteran mental health, and that's Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas. Um, I had the, uh, the honor and the privilege of actually attending uh, a, a workshop in which uh, uh, Dr. Thomas had spoke, uh, and I was able to reach out and ask her to come on the show. So, uh, before we get into some of the stuff that I'm really interested in talking about and unpacking some of the stuff that I heard, uh, I want to be able to give her an opportunity to tell her a little bit about herself. So, Kate, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I love talking about military mental health to anybody who will listen. And it's often rare that people want to want to get into the nitty gritty on this. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I got into this work because I joined the Marine Corps myself right out of college. And I grew up a military dependent. Um, My dad was in the Marine Corps. So that really just felt like the natural next step. I mean, I see bad haircuts and bad architecture, and I feel like I'm home. Um, That's very, it's always been a very comfortable place for me. Um, My brother joined as well, and we served uh, for several years. I was a military police officer. He was an infantry officer. And we were actually in Iraq at the same time. Uh, I was able when he was coming into country, I was at the very end of my tour and I had convoyed south to where he was going to be landing. I'm still not sure how I knew he was coming in, but I was at the hangar when his unit was disembarking and I watched him walk towards me and I thought, oh, no. And I had this sinking feeling in the pit of my chest and this very very lucid moment of feeling vulnerable and feeling human. And I hadn't really allowed myself in the previous months to feel any of those things at all. Um, And so I was worried and I I sent him north to Ramadi and I I knew where he was headed and what he was headed into. But around that same time I was packing to redeploy, meaning go home, and I did what I was good at doing. I kind of mentally compartmentalized and, and packed my gear When I was on my way home, I didn't realize it, but he was too. He had run over a double-stacked IED on a dirt road outside of Ramadi, and he was one of the Marines that lived to be medevaced from that IED blast, thank God. Um, But not everybody was so lucky. So I spent my post-deployment leave when I got back from Iraq um, at... Bethesda Naval Hospital, watching my brother and Marines and soldiers like him trying to recover from physical wounds of war. And for me, it was a really confusing time. I was so angry. I was so angry at everybody in the country that wasn't as deeply involved in the war effort as I currently felt that I was. Um, Not only was I on active duty, and I had just served, but me and those that I loved were suffering, um, you know, we're, were trying to heal and, and get back to normal. So it prompted me to stay in the Marine Corps. I had originally intended to get out. I was gonna go on and, and do something different, go back to school. But I felt like there was no way I could leave the Marine Corps, which was my family and my identity when the country was at war. And I started working, my brother was always a tremendous athlete. And though he had some, he had physically been changed, He wanted to remain an athlete. And for that reason, I started volunteering for groups that did adaptive wellness with Wounded Warriors. So how do you take somebody that was a tremendous runner and help them stay athletic? The good news is there's all kinds of ways, adaptive CrossFit, adaptive yoga. And I became extremely passionate about those things. But the more I worked in that space, the more I realized that it wasn't just about the physical wounds. It often became about the emotional, spiritual, and mental wounds of um, participating in participating in, in war and being in the military. So I started to, I did get out, I did go back and I started to study mental health and public health. And that's what brought me to the work that I do today. Um, I've had so many, I've had so many people, that I love serve in the military. It, it feels like my culture, my community, my family. And, and that's what draws me to the work.
0: Now that's uh, it, it's definitely interesting and in, in having it be a military affair. Um, you grew up, uh... affectionately we call the military brats um, even that's in a separate culture um, both of my children were born in uh... in germany when i was stationed there uh... and i often say i had this conversation with my son when we first started talking about this um, he's not from anywhere you know i'm from st louis missouri that's where i grew up i have a hometown uh... my kids aren't from anywhere you know they're like well i was born in germany we spent time in maryland We've lived longest in Colorado, but we're not from any of those places. And so um, that is, and, and we hear a lot about this, um, uh, the military is a family affair now in the, um, the post-draft era. Um, but then going into you and your brother, um, I am the son of Vietnam veteran. I wasn't a military brat. My father served. Uh, but yes both me and my brother served and much like you we have a two brothers in Afghanistan at the same time uh, I took a, a helicopter ring route down to uh, fob shank and we had breakfast one morning he and I together um, and, and but that's something unique uh, and that's separate you called it a culture but that's separate from uh, what a lot of people understand and um, with a lot of the veterans that you talk to and and you work with, are you seeing that same thing that it's very much a family affair?
1: Yes. And what's interesting is the, the data indicate that you're much more likely to join the military. If you have a parent or close family member that also served, um, you're just more likely to see it as a viable career opportunity as, as something, um, as a desirable duty in the all volunteer military. We find, we find that to be true. Uh, Certainly when I work with veterans, most of them have, many of them have exposure to the military beyond their own service experience.
0: And so, and then that lends itself to, as you were talking about, you coming back from your deployment and spending your deployment caring for your brother, um, the cross-generational impact. This isn't just something that is uh, impacting those of us who served. Uh, Now we're in the 17th year of, of a conflict um, in that we have another generation who is engaging in afghanistan right now um, uh... in this conflict right now is crossing three generations um, we know that um, twenty five years after a conflict ends is when we're gonna start to see a spike in services and things like that um, we're twenty five years away from some of the oldest of us getting to the point where we're sixty five years old this is going to be a long-term impact Um, addressing the psychological concerns.
1: Well, I think it adds a layer when you you consider the mental health and well-being of service members coming from a family that also served, you know, describing, you, you very clearly described that morning that you flew down, you took a dangerous helicopter route down to a fob just to see someone that you loved. But it adds a layer when you think about well-being of Potential alienation and othering because you know, and it may have been this way for you But for me very strongly very clearly very definitively there was an us and us were People who were involved in the war effort people who were touched by it people who were I could viewed it as contributing Uh, And then there was a them people that didn't have to care in the same way and what that meant was that I, I fully bought into warrior culture and all of the norms, the stigma against care seeking, the the be tough and have your stuff together at all times mentality, I bought into that to an even greater degree because my identity was more closely tied to my military identity. So it, it certainly adds a layer and a barrier to care seeking that we are seeing in, in the veteran population.
0: Now, that's great. I I think that is a very clear definition um, that I might not have heard about the military-civilian divide, right? I mean, that's really what that is. This is the us uh, who have served and them that those that haven't or us. You said we're suffering um, and you're not. Uh you know, one of the common themes is, um, you know, we go to war and America went to the mall. Um, and and that's also been the same uh, for every conflict. There's always been this warrior class that seems to be set apart. Um, and we've responded differently to them, obviously, uh, from the World War II, Korean, Vietnam, Gulf, and then now um, the post 9-11 generation. Um, but then the culture is that we then stand on the ground that we know and we solidify service members are as culpable for that gap that exists as those who didn't serve.
1: Right. Absolutely. And and that's something uh, the first book I ever wrote, um, Brave, Strong, True, the last chapter was about being a civil veteran, like understanding that your role when you come back is not to have a chip on your shoulder. And I, I, Definitely admit my own culpability with that. For years, I had a chip on my shoulder. And for years, I I isolated myself. I, I judged anyone who wasn't part of the us class or caste. And the result for me was a series of of adverse outcomes that it's not a pretty ending when that's the way you look at your community. Um, So I think it's really important for veterans to put the onus on ourselves to connect across that military civilian divide and to look for the myriad ways that civilians are contributing. So for me, I started doing volunteer work and I looked left and I looked right and there were civilians that were contributing to their communities in ways that I hadn't even thought about for the last several years. And it, it made me realize there are a million ways to serve. There are lots of ways to add value and to contribute. The one and only way isn't deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, there was an opening of my own mind, a letting go of my own ego and a, a willingness to communicate across perceived difference that I had to embrace to to get there. But it's a much healthier place uh, on the less divided side.
0: Well, and I think that takes a level of awareness that, uh, you know, it's it's an effortful awareness that we actually have to pay attention to that. Um, Another colleague, I'd had him on the show before, Jay Knight, he was a a former Marine, uh, but he said the same thing. He said, I deliberately go out two or three times a year, and volunteer in non-veteran related things, right? I deliberately go out and seek something outside of my, um, you know, it's not Team RWB. It's not Team Rubicon. He's like, I go to the local homeless shelter and I don't go to the veteran homeless shelter. I go to um, this. and But even that, that took his awareness and your awareness to say these outcomes are, are are not the greatest and I need to change something about myself. I think that awareness is hard to come by. Uh, for a lot of veterans until they get to a crisis moment.
1: I, I And that's what got me there, unfortunately. Um, and I joke now about having been a stove toucher. I've always learned the hard way. Um, but I learned that my attitudes and my behaviors were contributing to poor mental health outcomes when... I did what a lot of, a lot of Marines do. I, I, a lot of women Marines marry another Marine. Uh, We both got out of the Marine Corps and I understand now that I've studied it, that he was dealing with either a stress injury or a mental health condition. And he was doing a lot of self-medication and there were all of the, all of the Jerry Springer style things that go along with that story were happening in my own life and I was completely incapable of realizing it. I can say now, oh, he was self medicating a stress injury. But at the time, I couldn't recognize in my own partner who was fellow Marie. So thus couldn't have such problems because only the weak have such problems. I was incapable of recognizing that in my partner and thus offering help to my partner. And I was incapable of recognizing what that was doing to me and what that isolation was doing to me. So I was alone in a basement drinking beer. And I looked around and realized something is not right. You're not supposed to be alone in a basement drinking beer. That's not healthy. And uh, from there, I started looking to extend outside of outside of some unhealthy relationships and outside of my own my own little myopic worldview and, and and expand and be willing to say there might be problems here. I was never willing to say, and I think this is uniquely prevalent among women veterans who are a minority when they're on active duty and you're always part represents whole. So you always have to have your stuff together because if you mess up, you're, you're shaming all military women, all of your, all of your sisters. So you, you have this veneer of perfection and this veneer of professionalism and always having it together that you must uphold at all costs. And, uh, I had, to, I had to take that down and I had to be willing to tell somebody, hey, I don't know if everything's okay. This is what's going on in my life. And I was alone in a basement drinking beer. I don't think that's good. And I had to hear somebody say to me, you know, that kindest of phrases, you know, she said me too, all of us like, yeah, that's, we're all struggling. And it was the kindest thing. And I, I think about it all the time. It's the nicest thing anybody could have said, because at the time I was so ashamed of the experience.
0: The, the silence that we hold on to, um, it, it makes the isolation even seem larger, right? Um, I, I really appreciate uh, your courage in, in talking about um, uh, your relationship. Uh, what I hadn't realized, um, I, I, I had actually read your article on task and purpose a long time ago uh, or, or when it originally came out. It was a couple of years ago now um, about that. Um, And hadn't connected, I didn't know it was you when I met you in in that article, you very easily could have come out of the basement and stopped drinking the beer and not been as vocal about your experiences. Um, A lot of times, and I was actually talking to a colleague this morning where uh, cancer survivors will proudly say, I am a cancer survivor. Um, a, a good friend of mine who just had his birthday said, yes, I just had my birthday, but this day that I beat cancer is my new birthday, right? Um, and see, he's very vocal about his his cancer recovery or another colleague who I have who is a, a kidney donor, and really does all that. So we talk about the physical things very easily and openly, uh, but we don't talk about the fact that uh, that we had these dark things Happen um, for you, uh, you've been very vocal about that.
1: Well, I started studying. You know, I, I've always been a little nerdy by nature, and so part of my recovery was going and reading and, and studying about what was going on in the veteran community. Because when that woman said to me, Me too, I'm dealing with problem drinking, I've been a victim of domestic violence, I feel sad, and I'm alone in the basement sometimes. When I When I heard that, it prompted me to to do a little bit of looking and over 30 percent of women veterans report intimate partner violence at some point in their lives. And when I read numbers that uh, and that's an underreported number, we think when I read numbers like that, I get I got mad. And I said, my problems are not special. I thought for so long that I was rare and special, and thus I needed to be ashamed of how wrong I was, when really my problems were a symptom of a larger issue. And I found that actually empowering, because if we can understand the systemic issue or the population issue, we can get in between that. We can do something about that. And um, to me, that felt like an olive branch. That felt like uh, permission to talk about it,
0: and I think this emergence of uh, of talking about mental health and, and veteran mental health specifically military and veteran mental health um, is sort of the same thing of um, of saying, look, it, you know me too, right? I've had some of these veterans uh, or some veterans who were on the show, uh, Jeff Adamek, who is a um, you know an 18 Bravo Special Forces uh, soldier, a Silver Star recipient. Um, who said, you know, I was medically retired because of PTSD and TBI. He's like, it's, it, this is the truth. We can be silent professionals mm-hmm. and other things, but we don't need to be. We can't afford to be silent about this anymore. Um, and, and do you find that that then opens up the conversation regarding mental health? It's almost giving permission for someone else to be able to say me too because they wouldn't initiate that conversation.
1: Absolutely. And I I think when we talk about care seeking and we talk about making the situation better, that's a two pronged conversation. And part of it is normalizing the experience. I would rather that I didn't have to fall down the rabbit hole as far as I did. I would rather that I didn't have to go through a healing process, but I did. And somebody saying me too," your experience is not special. This happens to lots of us that was extremely helpful. It normalized it, it took away shame. It helped me look for resources and look for somebody to talk to. Um, it helped me understand my experience in a larger context and that was incredibly healing and, and promoted, promoted my well being. But the prong I'm really interested in is the prevention prong. So what can we do so that somebody, so that somebody leaving the military with a mild or moderate stress injury doesn't go and become a problem in a partnership, right? How can we prevent mild and moderate cases of stress injury and depression um, while people are training, while people are on active duty? How can we cultivate resilience and mental fitness? And what I love about that is the things that we do to build somebody's mental fitness are the same things we do to treat somebody who needs to recover from stress injury or depression. So you catch everybody. You catch people with active cases and you catch people who someday might have an active case. But by framing the language around training, preparation, peak performance, performance optimization, you take away that stigma. I mean, you walk into any active duty unit and talk about mental health and well-being and you're going to get some eye rolls. I mean, stigma is strong within warrior culture. But if you walk in and you talk about performance optimization, you get some peaked interest because everybody wants to be the best Marine, soldier, sailor, airman that they can be. So I I think framing the conversation is really important. And I've started using language like bulletproofing the psyche or um, building mental fitness rather than mental health treatment.
0: No, I, I appreciate that, and and I am from um, maybe a camp that says uh, a rose is a rose is a rose, right? You know, we don't call cancer not cancer, and this is definitely is not a knock on that, it, it, because I recognize that uh, there is that. You know, I drive a jeep, and uh, you know, uh, jeeps are, are like Legos for big kids, right? You know, it, we it change stuff, um, and. And if I were on active duty, uh, it would be more appropriate for my peers perhaps to see my Jeep parked outside of a strip club or a bar than it would be seen sitting outside of a mental health clinic, right? The The mental health clinic is actually more beneficial to me. The strip club and the bar is not because I'm married and have a very uh, uh, happy uh, marriage and life in that sense. But yet it would be better sort of in the, as you call it, the warrior culture to be seen, you know, high-fiving when I'm doing something that's not good and talking behind the hand when I'm doing something, uh, that is good. Um, and, and we've tried that in the military, right? We, we called it mental health and we shied away from that. We called it behavioral health and shied away from that. We called it combat, um, combat stress when we were deployed, right? You know, and and shied away from that. Um, and, and so there is that resistance towards seeking treatment until after a crisis happens. I was talking to a, a veteran recently, uh, and I said we are much more like the the counter IED team that comes in after the explosion to find out what happens, rather than the ones that try to prevent it from the beginning, right? Um, yeah. How do we we get to early prevention? Uh, a lot of talk about getting left of the boom. Um, you know, how do we get to veterans? How do we support family members who are supporting veterans? to get the prevention piece to say that if we just get some of these things in the right place early on, then you're actually not going to get to crisis. How do we do that?
1: So I'm a huge believer in somatic practices, in body-based practices that are meant to grow a person's working memory capacity. There's been some exciting research in this area in um, cohorts pre and post deployment. And what I think what would make it most palatable to the military community would be making mental fitness training something that gets assessed in the same way that physical fitness training gets assessed. So if what I'm saying is that you need to de-escalate your nervous system intentionally twice a day every day, And your working memory capacity will expand, your brain will get bigger, your ability for focus, upper level cognition and emotional regulation, things that we need in a soldier in a deployed environment, you will you will simply be better in that way. I have to find a way I can't just tell you to do that. Right, I have to find a way to assess it and score you on it so that we can see if you're actually practicing it. And I think that's the only way that you're going to see somatic practice become normative, become um, culturally accepted. Uh, and, and that would go a long way towards preventing adverse mental health outcomes. Now, whether we're talking about a salivary cortisol swab out on the PFT field, whether we're talking about, you know, I, I don't think we're in a place, it's not scalable to say everybody's going to get a functional MRI and we're going to check and see your working memory capacity expand. But we can check your blood cortisol. We can check for heart rate variability. There are things that we can do to see if you are regularly and intentionally de-escalating your own nervous system if you are training yourself to be mentally fit. And so I think we do that. We expand people's capability to deal with stressors, to deal with adverse stimuli, we go a long way towards preventing mild and moderate cases of stress injury and depression. And those are also, you know, those are treatment protocols that we see in in the treatment sector. So somebody who's got an existing case would benefit from that training as well. And would also bring, you know, you can think about about it as um, samurai warrior culture or, you the the spartans focused on intentional breath you do it on the rifle range breath control and focus to enhance performance there are cultural parallels that we can draw upon but i'm a big proponent that the dod has to roll this out as a a fitness metric
0: no i i really like that you know the doer does with the checker checks right and you know and if we tie it to um the, the enhance of performance then people are going to pay attention to it you know, I, I, as you were talking, we do things in the military um, to instill resilience, um, both physical and even psychological. The Crucible and the Marine Corps, right? You know, as, as they go through boot camp, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, um, you know, SEER training, uh, survival, escape, uh, resistance, and evasion. Um, we, we put special forces selection, ranger school. We put people in these very intense, Um, psychological and physically demanding situations and hope that um, resilience is a result, right? And those that that don't get that resilience, they go in this other, you know, you don't make it through the course or what have you. Um, But in that way, it's almost like resilience is a secondary outcome rather than a primary input, teach people how to be resilient so that they can then get through these stressors. Is that sort of what you're talking about?
1: Exactly, because it's been it's been proven that we can do that we can literally expand the size of someone's working memory capacity only one third of humans are innately resilient one third of people and and this has been studied in um children with adverse childhood experiences so kids who grew up in environments that they never should have made it out of functional one-third of those kids make it and actually become productive healthy functional citizens two-thirds don't because they're not innately resilient and unless you, there's an intervention with specific training to actually change the nervous system your body can't respond to the constant adverse experiences and the constant stressors so there's got to be an intentionality to that and a recognition that most humans can't do this on their own they have to be trained to do it unfortunately i know myself and i'm not innately resilient i am not a naturally resilient person Um, i have fallen on my derriere enough times in my life to realize that to be the case but now i have these practices that i do I have specific skills that I work on building and I can actually change my ability to demonstrate mental fitness and temerity against stress. Um, but that's only because I've learned how to do it. So I'm so passionate about teaching um, teaching people how to do it. Uh, one of the places that is interested in doing this sort of thing is uh, drill instructor school for the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps had a really bad PR year last year with, with DIs let's just euphemistically say not responding well to their stressful lifestyles and environments. Uh, So so there's all this work on how do we cultivate resilience in drill instructors, their their work is hard, their work is stressful, how do we help them um, with their mental fitness? And that it's just useful for everybody, it's useful for parents, it's useful for any sort of professional, but it's uniquely useful for the military active duty population
0: no the the idea of the adverse childhood experiences uh, we know uh, you know as it, definitely us in the mental health field Um, is that is an indicator of later life challenges. If you have, um, for example, a a parent incarcerated uh, uh, domestic violence in the home, all of these, and there's a number of these, um, the military sometimes is as much a running away from something as it is a running to something. And not just for service members, but also maybe a young spouse. And now you have two 19-year-olds that are trying to get out of a negative situation and they're in a different negative situation uh, but then there's the idea of uh, as you said innate resilience but that puts me in mind of talent versus skill development right you know people can have a talent for playing basketball and then somebody can develop that um, and, and achieve nearly the same or even higher if the, uh, the person who's talented never works at it so just because one is in that other two thirds of resilience, and they did have these adverse childhood experiences, it doesn't mean that you're written off for life. That's the the neuroplasticity, the the um, the changeable changeableness of our brain has the ability to we can. You know, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, you know, was asthmatic as a kid and then he, you know, changed his body. He created his body. Um, And we can do the same things with our minds.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things you see in in children with significant adverse childhood experiences is their amygdala grows. So they're more reactive to stress. That can be reversed. I mean, we we can do a lot of things to intervene in our mental well-being and in our mental fitness. And I think that these training practices, For the military community are vital um if i had known when i was getting out of the military if i had known how to build my own resilience i don't think i would have made some of the mistakes that i did i don't think i would have been as responsive or as reactive to stress i certainly wouldn't have you know your joke about the bar and the strip club i wouldn't have coped with stress in such maladaptive and unhealthy ways i would have gone i would have gone about it completely differently and I would have seen different outcomes. So I really hope that someday you and I are having this conversation and it's just another performance metric in the DOD and it, and it makes a radical difference for um, for veterans that, that come after us. But there's going to be, as you said, there's going to be decades of work to be done um, for, for this military community
0: and and so and that's it definitely there's hope for the future and and I've I've often said it um, you know, we, we raise our fist at the VA right now. Uh, the VA now is not the VA of 15 years ago, and the VA 15 years from now is not going to be the VA of now, right? And we're in this constant, you know, improvement and things like that. Um, I had Terry Tunelian on the show, uh, and she said much of the uh, early changes in how we approach mental health and wellness in the military was based off of what they saw from Vietnam and the Gulf War. And so we learn our lessons later on, um, and so the idea of there's a lot of benefit to be done if, you know, this is how the story ends, so let's go back and change the story for the next generation. Um, but that doesn't matter. The chicken or the egg doesn't matter when you have a bunch of chickens running around. We have a lot of veterans right now who are currently in crisis. um and, and maybe not at the crisis point, I'm definitely not uh, uh, propagating the myth of the broken veteran, um, but this point of um, we're, we're hovering a little bit closer to the crisis line than we probably need to, um, how do we generate that conversation? You've done a lot of talking, speaking, um, you know, working. How do we get more of that conversation into the mainstream, the, the kind of conversation we're having now?
1: Well, I... I am one of those people that believes there are things that we can do that promote health and well-being that don't have to involve a couch. So if we know that veterans who are dealing with a mild or moderate condition can be helped through positive social support programs, can be helped through through body-based healthy healthy living practices, can be helped through um, referral to resources eventually when they're open to that we can bring those programs to the veteran community. And there are so many organizations that are working hard to do that sort of thing in the nimble nonprofit sector. And I think the work that organizations like Team Red, White and Blue are doing, all they do is plan a party, plan a fitness event and invite everybody to come. And if at that party or at that fitness event, a veteran who's maybe struggling a little bit extends a hand and talks to a civilian community member or extends a hand and talks to a fellow veteran, who knows what comes out of that in terms of in terms of healthy outcomes? So I think the answer are these bridge programs like RWB, like the mission continues that offer safe opportunities to draw people in, um, and hopefully serve as a bridge to to the treatment sector. Um, but normalizing treatment uh making treatment seem less weird, less hooey, there are a lot more male veterans that do yoga now than there were five years ago, so I just I have hope that we're starting to look at taking care of ourselves from a more holistic perspective mind, body, spirit they all matter
0: no that's that's really great also uh the idea of these organizations being the the gateway, you know, um, the the bridge, as you call it, to treatment, um, a lot of times, you know, people say, well, well, this is all I need. And not Team Rubicon, not RWB, but, you know, some organizations are say, well, I'm good at X, and so all a veteran needs is X. And if they don't respond well to my X, then there's something wrong with them. Right? I mean, this is one of the challenges that I've seen in, and much less the smaller nonprofits, is, um, if people think therapy uh, with a little T, right? You know, my, <laughs> some people claim that, that drinking beer in a basement alone is my therapy, right? When it's not really, right? <laughs> it's be- just because it makes me feel better in that moment, but it's ultimately long-term destructive. Uh, so that idea of, yes, let's get the, the least invasive or the most um, approachable uh, program out there, but don't let that be the end. And as you said, is is normalizing treatment and say, you know, yes, sometimes just a good run may be the only thing that we need to clear our head. Um, and uh, when you're dealing with the anniversary of a buddy that you lost nine years ago, the run may not be the only thing that, that clears your head, right? Um, right. And so it, being able to connect that, the, the mental health community, and, and I have said it often here and, and will continue to say it, we therapists don't have very good pr right we do not promote we don't do ourselves any benefit Um, we definitely have a public relation problem um, because uh, you know a veteran will think that they're going to go into the office and somebody's going to sit cross-legged on the floor burning incense right and 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 that's sort of the image Um, and so we as a mental health community need to get out uh, like what we're trying to do here and say look this is I'm doing the same thing as, a, as a, a counselor, only with the clinical training, that I did as a platoon sergeant and a first sergeant. Hey, sit down, Joe. What's going on inside your head? Um, that it can be as much, uh, as you said, the, the annual fitness training test. Uh, what would it be like, um, just like, you know, we have to be to the dentist twice a year, and if we don't go to the dentist, then the, the first sergeant or the commander is going to get, that, uh, um, gonna get that, that bad notice. Um, what about just going and talking to talk into a therapist twice a year? Just a mental checkup. Just a hey, where are you at, and how are things, and and are things okay? And make it as normal as that. Um, not in a forceful and everybody way. Everybody
1: does it exactly. Yes. If everybody does it, it's not a stigmatized behavior. If it's required behavior, um, you're at least opening the door, right? You're normalizing the experience. And don't let anyone burn incense, and it'll be fine. <laughs>
0: And, and that's the, I think, the biggest misconception around, you know, uh, a treatment that uh, you're going to come in and you're going to have to tell everybody the worst days of your life. And you may. Right. Or that may not be uh, the biggest challenge. But this idea of how do we get to the left of the crisis to get to veterans before something bad happens, before they're in a domestic situation on either side um, or before they are a justice involved or uh, a post-suicide attempt. Um, that I think is the critical question for not just the mental health community, but the veteran community as a whole.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, decreasing stigma is, we have to take an ecological approach to decreasing stigma. So there is, there's a semantic challenge. There's a PR challenge. There's a, Uh, There's a no wrong door challenge if somebody if somebody, for example, let's say somebody goes to one of these veteran service organizations or even to family services for financial counseling, and they say a couple of things that makes that participant or makes that financial counselor realize, well, they might benefit from the treatment sector, they might benefit from talking to someone. Is that gateway person prepared to do the referral? And uh, all too often the answer is, is no, they're, they're not comfortable or they're not prepared or they don't have resources at the ready to do the referral.
0: No, so in there you're talking about uh, community awareness and engagement and education. Um, uh, before I retired and, and some a little bit afterwards, uh, I was a applied suicide intervention skills training instructor, right? So I, I taught a two-day workshop. Uh, and this was a gatekeeper workshop, and one of the points that we made there was um, the gatekeepers—the um, police officers, the local clergy, the family members, the person behind the, uh, um, you know, the food stamp—you uh, know—they're the ones that are most likely going to come in contact with someone in crisis. It's not going to be the clinician or the emergency room doctor; those are secondary, and sometimes even tertiary um, individuals—the ones who are most Comfortable addressing these issues are going to be least likely to see them in the first place, right? And right. trying to figure out how we're going to engage the community, and this is again goes back to that bridging that gap. Um, those that haven't served to be able to address, say that there are concerns, not that all veterans are crazy. This crazy combat vet, or you know, um, of, you've been deployed three times. Of course, you have PTSD how to do that in such a way that is not additionally stigmatizing and causing the gap to grow.
1: Right, how to do that without getting your hand slapped, right? to, to do it in a culturally competent way. And a lot of times it's gonna be an invitation to just to a non-therapeutic setting to build the relationship before referral to a therapeutic setting. Um, it took me a really long time. And I, I was involved with veteran service organizations for a really long time before I was willing to understand, one, that what was going on in my life wasn't normal, and, two, that a therapeutic setting could actually be beneficial for me. It took me a very long time to realize that. And um, and that's okay. That's okay. I mean, people are going to arrive at that decision in their own time, as long as we're, as long as the hand is continually extended in culturally competent fashion, the the resources are there.
0: in, in the length of time that it takes for a veteran to come to a situation in which, okay, I might need to deal with this. Um, I'm actually seeing um, post 9-11 veterans coming in much sooner than for example, the Vietnam veterans would have or, or did. Um, it was probably 15, 20 years for the origi- the first uh, wave of uh, Vietnam veterans. A lot of the veteran- Vietnam veterans that I work with say um, they really didn't start acknowledging their veteranness until the mid 80s, um, you know, often 17, 18 years after they had deployed. Um, whereas in the post- 9/11 generation, I'm seeing veterans start to come out 10 years, or even two to three years afterwards saying, hey, something's not right. Um, something needs to change. Is that something you're seeing too?
1: I hope so. You know, I mean, I, I working in this space, I think I would say yes. But that is, you know, that's so much the focus of my effort. Uh, it took me it it took me a several years. It, it definitely took longer than I wish that it had. But I think the more that we talk about destigmatizing mental health treatment, the more that we talk about alternative paths to getting health, healing, and mental health treatment, the, the more organizations that are out there trying to promote this to veterans, the more um, student organizations that are helping use campuses as sites of intervention, because we have so many, uh, so many service members that leave the military and immediately go to the, the college setting using their post 9-11 GI Bill, the more work, the more people working in this space, the, the quicker, veterans are going to to make their way to treatment if they do, in fact, need it. And, and the more common that's going to become. So my answer is really, I hope so.
0: I think that's going to take us mental health professionals getting out of our offices and um, mm-hmm. our particular comfort zone, because we that's what we do is we, we know that our product works um, and we set up our booth that says psychiatry five cents. Um, and then we just wait for people to come to us. Um, and that's not happening at the rate that it needs to essentially at the veteran um, in the veteran community um, that we need to be able to get out and have these discussions like you uh, writing the books and coming on shows and and speaking out like that um, taking mental health into the mainstream Um, and so this takes a a cultural shift for us as mental health professionals to get out of our comfort zone to essentially provide the best care that we really want to provide.
1: And taking kind of creative languaging approaches to getting people to get comfortable with you, I can think first uh, of a specific example in the VA's Vital Program. So this is a program where so- clinical social workers go onto college campuses and they offer mental health treatment, but they also offer benefits counseling. So these mental these clinicians get specific training in how to do entry level benefits counseling, and it becomes kind of the carrot through which student veterans come to them. Well, what can you tell me about getting VA benefits? And once they establish a comfortable relationship, that clinical social worker says, I also offer group therapy, partner therapy, individual therapy, would you would you potentially be interested in that? So there's a creativity in, in drawing people in that I think we're seeing in in the mental health treatment sector that's really exciting.
0: No, I I agree with that. It just uh, made me think, number one, uh, my own personal experience. Before I uh, was fully um, uh, licensed as a clinician to practice, I was working in a homeless program, uh, and I was sitting with our benefits. Um, uh, We had somebody come down every month and and work with the veterans who were in the residence um, to to do their benefits. And we were going over some different things and, and, you know, case management with each of the veterans. Uh, and then after we got done, she closed her book and she said, and what about you? And I said, well, me, I'm fine. And, you know, and, and it got to that point of, um, and again, this was two years afterwards. And she was like, well, what about your situation? What about your depression? And i was like, I don't have depression. And she said, I've been here for six months. I mean, and she was very gentle about it. And she was a great lady. Barb was was amazing. Um, And and even me, Physician Heal Thyself, right? I was in the last, you know, I I had been practicing in my internship for probably eight months at that point. Uh, But then also one of our, for my program here in Colorado Springs, one of our biggest referral sources is our local benefits office where they're talking to veterans and they're saying, hey, okay, so you're, you know, service connected for X thing. But this X thing isn't going to be resolved just by the money you get. You also might need to talk to these people over here. And so having that connection, we've actually had that with both our local senator office uh, because veterans will go to their local senator's office for congressional uh, restoration regarding their their benefits or or things like that. Um, So our local lawmakers representatives and our local benefits representatives are connecting veterans with us and saying, okay, we can help you with this paperwork problem, and there's other people that can make sure that this doesn't uh, derail you down the road. So that's, yeah. uh, that's a great point.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we're talking about doing that through, through a variety of different ways and understanding. I think anybody working with veterans needs to understand the hefty, hefty stigma against traditional care-seeking, but it's, and this is one of the things I try to clearly articulate, it's not just stigma against care-seeking. It's not that secretly veterans know they, they might need some care, they just don't want to seek care. It's that warrior culture tells you only weak people have problems. So thus, there's a barrier to even recognizing that you might have something that's worth talking about, or you might have something that's worth working through. There's a barrier to recognizing that in self, and in fellows, because it's simply not supposed to be there. It's not in keeping with the image and with the the warrior cultural norm. Um, I wasn't I was married to someone that I wasn't able to point to and say, he is self medicating a stress injury. I was so close to it, I should have been able to see it. But I I, the barrier was, that's for other people. That is not our story. It, It couldn't possibly be.
0: You were so close to the fire that you didn't notice the heat.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's funny to look back on. It's it's just amazing to look back on now and see the textbook clarity and realize, yeah. wow, how many barriers did I – how many walls did I have to have up to not see that?
0: No, that's and, and that is amazing, and I really appreciate your um, your willingness to, to speak out uh, and not just to obviously to take care or, or to, to manage your own concerns – uh, but also to then pass that on to other veterans, right? That's that's what we're all about. My shield covers my brother and my sister. Um, that that we take care of each other, and somehow we fail to do that, or we, and and maybe it might be exactly what you said. This lack of individual self awareness versus the the other awareness um, that keeps us from doing that, and actually exacerbates this. So uh, I really appreciate you and, and your efforts that you're doing to to really change this conversation.
1: Well thank you for your work. I imagine you've helped a lot of people simply because you come from the same place and that's just that's a it's a good starting point.
0: No, and it is. uh, And this is, uh, again, one of those things that, to be honest, there are some uh, clients that don't respond well to the former senior non-commissioned officer, you know, because maybe that was some of the challenge that they had in the military. Um, So us as the mental health profession, recognizing that we're not the only solution. There's a myriad solutions. Um, uh, Another conversation that I recently had, um, said that uh, uh, Brett Litz from the, um, uh, the, the uh, National Center for PTSD, University of Boston, um, he evaluated a wide range of uh, almost like um, uh, forensic evaluations of suicides and, and the things that led up to those suicides, and almost none of them were the same. There were a thousand different paths not, not literally a thousand, but there were, you know, every situation was slightly different or massively different in some way, all with the same outcome. And that creates a problem for us to try to provide a solution. Um, mm-hmm. But that solution is to be able to give the veteran what they need, when they need it, how they need it, um, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, prevent that crisis.
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm working with a team right now on a, on a large grant called Operation Deep Dive, and we're doing psychosocial autopsies, uh, trying to figure out if there are identifiable patterns. And, and what you're saying is true. There are, there are many identifiable patterns. So there's a lot we have to be educated on and on the lookout for so that we can help one another and reach one another.
0: No, I, I really appreciate that. So uh, before we go, is there any last thoughts that you think that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: One, I would say thank you for caring about this topic and being willing to to listen to a conversation about stress injury, depression, and, and bulletproofing the psyche. I, I think it's so wonderful that that people would dedicate their time to understanding this issue just a little bit more and uh, i am always open to furthering this conversation you can reach me at dotkate.com and i would be happy to continue the dialogue
0: no that's uh, that's amazing so thanks for coming on the show
1: thank you for having me
0: you're listening to headspace and timing on the change your pov podcast network As I mentioned, I had the opportunity to meet Kate at an event that she was speaking at. Like me, she's a combat veteran and is focused on mental health and wellness after the service. As you heard in the show, she's extremely open about her experiences. As a female veteran, a dual military spouse, and someone who struggled with her own transition. How much more could we change the conversation around veteran mental health if more of us came out and said, Sure, we struggled when we got out of the military, but we figured it out. I also recently had the opportunity to meet Admiral William McRaven, one of the leading military commanders of our time. Admiral McRaven was the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command before he retired and organized and oversaw Operation Neptune Spear, the raid that took out Osama bin Laden. In his talk to us, Admiral McRaven, one of the most decorated and respected military leaders, said, We don't come out of the military broken, but we do come out changed. Our military service impacts us, some more than others, but definitely changes us in ways that we might not even know. When things get too much in the way, we can reach out for help. Another great point that Kate made in the show was how evaluating resilience and psychological strength is a way to make it seem less onerous. If everyone in the military were to get used to the idea, then it might not be so challenging to talk about. Several weeks ago, in episode 81 with Matt Wettenkamp from the Cohen Veterans Network, he brought up the idea of semi-annual checkups. And way back in episode 52, Marjorie Morrison of PsychArmor talked about the program she worked with at Camp Pendleton, in which every boot camp cadre met with a mental health professional. There are a lot of paths to the same goal, and one of the first steps on that path is awareness. Hopefully, that's what we were able to help with today, some awareness around building resilience and mental health and wellness. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to the show. Remember, you can see the show notes for this episode and all of the episodes at veteranmentalhealth.com. Stay tuned next week when we talk with Dr. Bradley Carlin about a new website that's talking about mental health and wellness, TreatmentWorksForVets.org. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it, and until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at duane at Health.com. You can find me at Twitter at the Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV podcast network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctodd.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever.